Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. My name is Mary Vandenack. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management and leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Veterans at Victory Housing and Small Business Centers, Foster Group, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Ann Burnett. Ann is founding partner of Burnett Wilson Law Firm in Omaha, Nebraska. Ann is just simply one of my favorite attorneys. We've had the opportunity to work together, and I particularly appreciate her approach to client service and collaboration with other professionals. I asked Ann to participate in today's episode just to talk about objective-based estate planning, which we both practice. Thanks for joining me today, Anne. Thanks for having me, Mary. So, Anne, you and I have both been doing estate planning and related business planning for most of our careers. I always find it interesting when someone thinks that estate planning is about just having a will. And I kind of laugh and say, you know, I spend less than probably 10% of my time actually drafting documents. So it's really a small part of what we do as planners. We're dealing with death, family, taxes, and money. 
Those are pretty personal topics and can get pretty emotional. Can you just talk about what estate planning is from a broader perspective? Absolutely. I jokingly say when we do estate planning, it's death and disability with a smile. But essentially what we're doing is we are worrying about what happens if somebody passes, how do we take care of their assets? How are things titled such that we do it the best way possible to make it simple? We're looking at the tax implications so we can avoid or minimize taxes to the extent we can. We're also dealing, what if somebody gets disabled? Who's going to take care of their person? Who's going to take care of their money? And really packaging all that together. And then, of course, making sure it's current because life changes and that you keep it up with whatever your personal circumstances are. And so when I'm meeting with a client and they are most of the time, well, a lot of times just start with the death thing. And and I bring up, well, okay, now wait a minute. What is happens to you? And if they're married, spouse, right? If, and I just, it's not uncommon as you've been practicing a while to have two spouses get incapacitated at the same time. And I just had that situation where one of the two incapacitated spouses passed away this week. And that's always kind of a challenging. So I really talked to them about how important incapacity planning is because, okay, when you're dead, you're dead. But while you're alive and you're incapacitated, what does it look like? So if you have to choose between a will and incapacity, incapacity planning, a client's only going to do one. I typically say, look, what happens to you while you're incapacitated and unable to take care of yourself is almost more important than what happens when you're dead. Because you know what? <laughs> Whoever's left can deal with those issues. I 100% agree. <laughs> so. Can you talk a little bit about what we really mean when we're describing incapacity planning? So incapacity, uh, as you were saying, you're, you're alive and it's somebody making very important decisions for you, right? Who's taking care of your money, paying your bills? Who is making your medical decisions if you can't? Um, with those documents, you're going to have a power of attorney, financial and a medical power of attorney. Do you have a trust? And does that trust give some protections for taking care of your assets during a period of incapacity? capacity. How are your assets titled? And which type of uh, document or control do you have over those assets during that period? And of course, if you have long-term care, do you have long-term care insurance? Do you have, you know, is Medicaid or VA planning? All of that are the more important things because they deal with your life, your incapacity. And like you said, when you're dead, it's just pay the bills and give people money a lot of times. So it's almost more difficult to say, how do I want to be handled? if I'm incapacitated. And that long-term care planning is so important, whether it's somebody with, sometimes it'll be like, oh, that only matters if you don't have very much money. It matters whether you have a lot or a little. The issues slightly differ. I had always share like one of my most challenging situations was where I had a client who named just, you know, this old way of just, well, I'm going to name my oldest kid as the power of attorney, then the next, and then the next. And I had a client who named child, adult child in the fifties as adult, as the power of attorney. And when the financial affairs were turned over, the kids spent all the bucks. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden mom at 90 some years old is getting evicted from her facility. And that changed my perspective on who and how you name attorneys, in fact, under a power of attorneys, what are your thoughts and what somebody should think about when they name a power of attorney 
And we'll, let's break it into healthcare and finances. And personally, I like to see those be different attorneys in fact. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So the first part I say is picking the right person is probably the most important decision make in the whole estate plan. Both you and I, Mary, have seen bad choices and the mess that can make, like you just mentioned. So I, one of the first things I tell my clients is when you're choosing, it's not an honor. You don't just pick the oldest kid because they're oldest. It's a job. And so you have to think about what are the qualifications of the person? Do they have the skill set to handle money or medical? Where do they live? Are if they're closer, is that important to making the medical decisions or not? Or do I have to pick somebody because I really have a, you know, I have a CPA in the family. The CPA happens to live in New York. I'm still going to pick the CPA to handle the financial affairs. Some families have multiple choices, right? So that you can pick somebody to do financial and someone to do medical. And I agree dividing that job up is helpful for the family because it's overwhelming a little bit. Sometimes you don't have that. You have one kid and very small family. So one of the things I always say is each family is very different, but you spend a lot of time talking about what that job is, what is required and making sure they're going to be the right person. And sometimes you have to get outside of the family. Sometimes you're looking for corporate if it's money. Sometimes you're looking for a family friend as someone you're closer to than family. So again, very much talking about what the job is, the right people, and having backups. The other part is sometimes I look at an estate plan and you'll have just a husband and wife and they picked each other. It's like, well, you like each other. You probably go places together. We should make sure there's a backup in case something happened to one of you. So that's sort of what we deal with when we're looking at those documents. And that's something I've seen a lot. And especially through the pandemic where I've had both husband and wife, you know, got, would get COVID and be very ill at the same time. I've had dual COVID deaths and you know, long before COVID, there were other types of situations, but it's just really not uncommon to think, or you have one spouse who's taking care of the other who suddenly becomes ill. And so it's who is the backup. And one of the things I've become an advocate of is cross checks at the first level. Should I name co-attorneys? In fact, they can always delegate the authorities. So if you name co-agents under the finances, they can always Mm-hmm. delegate the power so that things are done easily, but at least there's a cross check in place and you don't have a situation. And I also think that to the extent you end up going to the kids after the spouse, that if you include are inclusive in terms of it, you don't have the see mom always had you do everything stuff afterwards either. Yeah. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. At Foster Group, we know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life, and how to get there. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. But can we talk briefly about, well, what happens if you, because choosing who you're going to name to deal with that issues and just contemplating 
the possibility of being incapacitated, I think a lot of time gets in the way of doing the planning. So let's just talk about what happens. What does that look like if they don't put incapacity planning in place? We make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, they pay the attorneys pay the way attorney. more than they should. Yep. So, you know, pay a little bit to do talk to us about the power of attorneys. Yeah, it might or be pay painful. a lot because you didn't do it. But yeah. yeah. But what that really means is that they're going to have to go to court. So if you don't have a financial power of attorney in Nebraska, that's called a conservatorship. You have to go to court to get somebody appointed to take and that's the term in most states, right? Most states, conservatorship. Yes, there's conservatorship. some states that call it something else. And then there's a guardianship. Guardianship is taking care of a person's person. Where do they live? Where do they go to the doctor? Do they go to a care facility? Oftentimes, those, again, might be the same person in court, or they might be two different people. But essentially, you're going to have to go to court to do that. And as you know, Mary, they changed all of our rules like 2012, made all of the reporting for that is quite a big deal. And it's a lot of effort and expensive. Whereas if you could avoid that with some pre-planning, everybody's better off. So power of attorney for healthcare, power of attorney for financial affairs, not all that expensive. Naming a trust, you know, setting up a trust is a little more expensive, but you actually have a trustee and you have kind of a coordination between the trustee and the power of attorney and the health care usually works pretty well. You pick the powers of attorney, who's going to be your attorney in fact, who's going to be your trustee. If it goes to court, because now you're incapacitated, and you and I have both seen some really ugly fights over who gets to act as conservator, it's usually the conservator, which is the big fight, because that's control that's of the money, money is. right? Is <laughs> to the health care, the guardianship, sometimes you have nobody wants to step up. Mm-hmm. And you end up with an outside guardian. So that's something that is a really, to me, that what I really hate seeing is that come up when you haven't done the incapacity planning. And so now we're having, you are incapacitated and we have a dogfight among beneficiaries about conservator and nobody wanting to deal with the healthcare issues. In fact, I've always joked with people like we have, you have a plan. If you, even if you don't do it yourself, but it's the government's plan. And most of the time, the government's plan is not going to be the same choices we would pick. So why would you not do documents to choose the people that you want to do these so very important things that are relating to your person, your money? So yeah, it's it, it becomes messy if you let, you know, three kids that don't get along, they're all the same priority for appointment. Who knows what's going to happen when you go to court? So there's a statutory order of who's going to, and let's mm-hmm. say that your kids have been estranged from you forever and you have a partner who lives with you and has taken care of you for 20 years, but you never got married. The kids come at the final hour and they have priority and they boot out your life yep, partner. And your significant life partner <laughs> is, doesn't have any role. And, yeah. and we see that happen. So it's a simple matter of really laying out the rules. Well, one of the things that you and I both believe is really important in the estate planning process is what we call the objective-based planning. What does the client really want? So let's say you are going to deal with your incapacity issues. You are going to deal with your estate planning issues. It's really easy for some lawyers, and what I talk to my young associates about, and I think we've shared some stories on that, is it's really easy just to start telling them what you think they ought to do before really hearing what matters to them. So... I like to talk about, you know, really your goals. And actually after the meeting with them, I'll like put it in writing. Cause sometimes when I say, well, here's what I heard. And they're like, oh my God, did I say that? 
Or you know what? As I thought about that, that's not as important to me as I thought because sometimes they really haven't thought through that process to that conversation. So what are your thoughts on objective-based planning? So actually, uh, one of the things, sometimes somebody comes into an estate planning meeting and they think it's literally like filling in the blanks, right? They, you know, like, oh, you want to fill this in. But we really spend a lot of time talking about who are they? What do they care about? Who are their kids? Tell me about your kids. Tell me about your grandkids. Tell me about your assets. What are your goals? What are the things that are important to you? Because objective planning is understanding them well enough to make sure that plan matches their current goals and their future desire for their family. Um, and I have a lot of times people say, I had no idea you were going to ask me that many questions, <laughs> you know, because Really, you want to get to know them so that the plan is very individualized to their family. And one of the questions I always feel like I have to ask if it's husband and wife, but it's always uncomfortable is now if you die first and he or she remarries, is it okay if she gets, takes all the money and gives it to the new spouse and doesn't give anything to the kids? And they always look at each other and go, oh, we never really thought about that, right? And sometimes the answer is, yeah, I don't care. And sometimes the answer is, oh, it changes the you know path in terms of what they're willing to talk about with estate planning. Well, the other thing that you and I have both dealt with on a fairly regular basis is just some really challenging family circumstances. I think, you know, one of my most challenging was a family who was just driven apart rather than brought together in a case where one of the siblings was actually brutally murdered out of state as well as the grandchild. And it drove the family into, you know, all kinds of, we had a lot of tough situations, but it's not uncommon to have like a disability in a family. How does that change the planning discussion? Actually, it's not complicated, but it's very, very important for a person or a family that has a disabled child. You don't want to give them assets outright because that will mess up any sort of state benefits they have. But yet it's very easy to create a special needs trust for them so that that money goes to them in such a way that enhances their quality of life, but doesn't mess up benefits they're on. So very simple. And if you've got a special needs child anywhere in the line, you should make sure you have that. And what do I mean by that? It might be your child. It might be your grandchild, great grandchild, even the possibility of a niece or nephew. If they're in there somewhere as a possible beneficiary, I'll usually put in language that says, if this person were to inherit do this, fix this, put it in a special needs trust for that person. And usually some language, at least in the trustee or trust protector provisions that let's say at the time of planning, there's not a disability, but there's always the possibility of a disability down the road. And then we might want to be able to change the trust, which has gotten a little bit easier these days, to be honest, almost too easy. And actually, we should talk about the trust protector. Uh, A trust protector is the ability to give someone the... The, the power to change the document for certain circumstances to amend for something like special needs or the tax law changes, or we need to deal with a battle between the kids, a trust protector in your, in your trust documents gives you a lot of flexibility for changes down the road. And that's become the whole directed trust concept in general, where once upon a time we had a trustee, a trustee only, and the trustee had all authority And a lot of, there was a lot of concern when we started having the ability to kind of split some of the duties of the trustee up, but I've seen it actually be pretty effective for a whole lot of things, but like the disabled child. Well, what about, you know, we see a fair amount of 
issues with a child, children with significant addiction. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those rise to the level of a disability that merits a special needs trust. But a lot of times there's the prospect for recovery. So what do you talk about when we have that type of issue? You know, one of the really nice things about a revocable trust is, and I make sure I say that slowly, revocable, not irrevocable, but revocable trust, you are giving someone the power in there to be able to say, I want this to be handled a special way for this person. And that special way is hold it back maybe for their lifetime because we're not sure if that drug or addiction or alcohol addiction is going to go away. And maybe during a period that things are fine, they're getting distributions um, from the trust. Maybe it's, you know, annually, maybe it's monthly, however, maybe it's for just health education, welfare, maintenance. But we put in language that says a trustee has a power to stop those if it's harmful to the person. And that harmful could be because they're using or they have alcohol issues. So we have that power to turn off the spigot, as it were, if it's bad for the uh, beneficiary. And I think we brought up the trust protector. That's another place where you can use the trustee trust protector combination and have some of that direction. Or in some cases, I've actually set up like a trust protector committee to review situations like that. So there's a lot of possibility so that if, you know, they've maintained a long time sobriety, you certainly want them to be able to have some access to the funds. But if they're you know, spending a lot of nights in the mission or whatever, that's a different situation. Actually, one of the interesting things you bring up, though, is that a trust is as uh, we can do as many things as we want to with it as long as we're within the law. And as it relates to handling somebody's money, we can give all kinds of directions, right? Whether it's in the trust or whether it's with the trust protector. It's one of the nice things about the trust is it's about control after death. And it's not control to be harmful. It's control to help the family with whatever their special circumstances in, whether it's special needs or whether it's alcohol or drug addictions. And a lot of a whole lot of other whole things lot of other well, things, right? Bad marriages, you know, we don't trust somebody, whatever those things are, we can pretty much handle any of those scenarios. You really get to, and that's what I like about the directed trust because you can create some, you know, like in my own trust for my son, I have a, like a committee that has a family member, a professional familiar with trust and estate services, and like a lifelong friend who make certain decisions with relation to distributions to my kid. And, you know, it's easy for me to do that since I'm in the, in the business right. of it <laughs> I can change it every day if I want to, but there's a lot of things you can do to really kind of build into your objectives into the trust. Well, one of the other things that we both run into is where a client has a family business. And one of the, t- a common scenario might be that two of the kids, two of four kids, let's say they have four kids, two of them are working in the family business Two of them are not, and that that can sometimes become they have their own careers, and that becomes an issue in the planning process. What kind of considerations do you discuss with clients in that situation? So I always say family businesses always add a, a layer of complexity, right? How do you treat everybody fair? What's the right thing to do? You know, do they want to give the business to the two that are working in it? Do they buy life insurance to buy out the two that aren't working in it? Are there other assets we could give the other two that are just easy to give cash to one or the other? How do we value the business at death to make sure that it's appropriate in the, you know, in the division? Um, You know, do they... The other part is, you know, equitable is sometimes not equal, right? Maybe the two worked in the business and maybe they should get a little bit more because maybe they 
didn't get paid fully. There was some blood, sweat, and tears in there. So I think I've seen a lot of families have a lot of problems with this. Talking about it sooner and working through the different ideas that fit that scenario, it's so important. And that's one of the ones where I'm not a big advocate. I know everybody has different views on it of like that you need to share all the details of your estate plan with your kids when you're still alive. Like my kids, it's right now, it's none of his business, right? Other families feel differently and that makes sense depending on the overall circumstances. But on the family business stuff, I would say that's one of the ones where I think there's that including kids in some of the planning conversations might matter. It might, although it is interesting. You do bring up the issue of, I like to meet with mom and dad alone at some time during that process because sometimes kids get a little overbearing or they're, they're talking about their desires and I have to step back and say, well, this is still mom and dad's mom and dad get to actually decide. But I do like the kids to be involved because they at least know we thought about this. This is what we wanted. This isn't a fluke. And there's kind of a warning to, if anything is slightly unbalanced, that they know that mom and dad chose this. Yeah, and I definitely don't want them at early meetings. I think I want to really know what mom and dad think, especially to the issues like you raised. If they have kids in the business who've been taking a lower paycheck than they could have made somewhere else and how that affects the value and really be able to get that. Because in typical families, there will be one or more of the children that will kind of drive the bus. But at some point, just kind of like at least maybe to talk to him about, oh, this is what we did. Yeah, absolutely. But and, yeah. not too early. Yeah, I yeah. totally agree. Not too early, and, and but again, somewhere I, along I, the way. <laughs> I know there are other practitioners that feel differently, but the last thing I want to do, because a lot of times as life evolves, things do change. And there it, it's not uncommon for to have a client that's been thinking about something. I mean, I had one client that was thinking about doing a particular thing relative to one daughter that made a lot of sense but didn't really make the call until on her deathbed. And she actually discussed it with the daughter and said, the daughter said, mom, why didn't you take Mary's advice on that? Oh my gosh, absolutely do that. And so we did. And that's one of the things where you create that sort of have that conversation and keep track of it so that somebody's not challenging. Oh, that change was too dramatic at the end. No, actually we were talking about it for 10 years. She just finally pulled the plug when it came to the time. Well, do you have any last thoughts on today's conversation, Zan? You know, I have I have two thoughts. One of them is that uh, the we should always make sure you keep them up to date, too, because we talked about doing this planning. And one of the things I always say is estate planning is a journey, not a destination. And that um, our life changes because our relationships with people change. Our kids grow up, our grandkids grow up. So our priorities sometimes change. So I think that's one of the most things, you know, you get it all done, you feel good about it okay, Barley better come back every few years and have that thing looked at again to make sure it still matches what you're thinking of. And no two families are alike. And so you shouldn't talk to your friend and say, they have this, I should have this. You're a unique person with a unique family. Your plan should match that. And I'd say as somebody who's doing it for a while, like I think as you've been practicing for a while, it becomes even more important because I used to tell people just to come back at least every five years. And then you find out how much can happen in life in five years. So we've gone to just kind of trying to find some way to touch base or send out a summary of their plan on an annual basis or like at least more often. But definitely like if there's a death or big change in circumstances in the family, at least merits a call to discuss that. 
Yeah, and that's actually a good point because like, we still kind of say every four to seven years you should come in. But I do try to reiterate, it really is about the things happening, a major change, marriage, divorce, new grandkids, retirement, you know, um, something happening to somebody, someone get disabled. It's about the things that happen in your life. If it's a big change, probably should see your lawyer, might change your estate plan as well. Or you receive a major inheritance might yep. change your planning as That's well. That's the fun one. Win the lottery. <laughs> Win the lottery. Yeah. I gave up buying lottery tickets. Yes. I, I only buy it when it's really large <laughs> and I'm probably never going to win. <laughs> well, anything else that you want to add? I think that's good. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here with me today, Anne. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Veterans Victory, Foster Group, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.